Welcome to the 26th episode of the first season of Justice Center Weekly from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm your host, Kevin Steele, and with me today is John Carpe, the president and founder of the Center. John is here to give us his reaction to the news that the Saskatchewan government intends to use the notwithstanding clause to override any objection to its policy requiring parental notification whenever a child under 16 years of age decides to switch genders. There is a lawsuit before the court seeking to strike down that policy, and recently a judge granted an an injunction that stopped said policy from being enforced while a case is being adjudicated. The Saskatchewan government believes it has enough support from people around the province that it can invoke the notwithstanding clause without suffering much of a political penalty. John, how do you see it? Well, the September 28th ruling came very quickly. It was it was August the 31st when the uh, UR Pride um, launched a court action seeking to strike down a Saskatchewan policy that required the consent of parents for children under the age 16 to start using opposite sex uh, pronouns and names and starting the the social transition towards uh, potential eventual uh, full transition removal of healthy body parts and and a lifetime of of uh, hormones and, and and surgeries and so the um uh, th- this was quite quick. From August 31st filing, uh, four weeks later, September the 28th, Justice Michael McGaw of the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench issued an interim injunction basically invalidating or suspending the Saskatchewan policy of informing parents about what's going on with their own children at schools. And um, it, it, I, I plowed through the, the 56-page ruling, and I'll, I'll make a few comments on it. Uh, starting point is that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, Section 7, Right to Life, Liberty, and Security of the Person, uh, recognizes a liberty interest on the part of parents to make major decisions, to make all all decisions, really, for their children. Uh, why? Because parents have a duty and a responsibility and an obligation to care for their children, and out of that duty, responsibility, obligation flows a right uh, to to make decisions for children uh, who are not miniature adults, uh, you know nobody's saying the charter is violated when uh, that 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 children under under a certain age, uh, you know, cannot vote, cannot drive a car, cannot purchase or consume alcohol or cannabis, cannot join the military, cannot get married, uh, cannot travel abroad without parental consent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nobody is in uproar about that because children are not miniature adults. Uh, They are under the guidance and the care, the love, the affirmation, the protection of their parents. Now, sadly, there are some terrible parents, and some of them are so terrible that it's actually in the child's best interest for the child to be removed from the care of those parents and, and be placed elsewhere. Uh, you know, hopefully in a in a permanent family setting, but but some home situations are so terrible that that even a foster home is going to be better than the home situation. This unfortunately is getting used as a pretext. The fact that there are some very bad parents uh, is getting used as a pretext for keeping all parents in the dark. Uh, Justice McGaw characterizes the Saskatchewan policy as a new policy. 
and I think he's skating on thin ice there because there's always been a presumption that, that parents have every right to know what's going on with their own kids at school. Uh, if your uh, 12-year-old girl uh, is saying that she's a boy trapped in a girl's body and she's not really a girl and she wants to be a boy or she already is a boy, wants to use a boy's name, boys change rooms, join the, the boys' sports teams, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's something very significant that, that parents have every right to know about. And so the court has here uh, sided with the LGBTQ activists and has, has struck down this policy on an interim basis pending a full hearing. But the full hearing would not be for many months. So we would have uh, three, four, five, six months uh, before a hearing and then another one, two, three, four, five, six months before a judgment. You'd have a big chunk of the school year where parents are getting kept in the dark uh, about what's going on with their own children. Uh, the judge also references an absence of experts on the side of the Saskatchewan government. Uh, I find this a little bit mysterious because experts cannot oust constitutional law. So, for example, uh, the Charter Section 2B guarantees freedom of expression. Just because you get an expert into court uh, saying that... Um, freedom of expression is not important to the free society, that doesn't oust the constitutional law that is there. And in the same way with parents, uh, there is a clearly established, affirmed by, by the Supreme Court of Canada, right of parents to make decisions for their own children. And obviously they cannot do that unless they are properly and fully informed. So any uh, keeping secrets from parents broadly... Now, if it was a very narrow policy that said, we're going to keep secrets from abusive parents, well, okay, I could see that as, as reasonable and, and, and the courts justifiably upholding that. This is a blanket policy that no parent in Saskatchewan um, can, can find out. Or th thanks to the court injunction, we're now in a situation where Saskatchewan parents cannot find out about what's going on with their own kids at school in relation to gender transition for their kids under the age of 16. It's not a narrow uh, approach of saying only uh, abusive parents uh, are are to be kept in the dark, which again I think would be uh, you know reasonable. Um, the judge, it's quite clear, he presupposes uh, when you read through the fifty six pages that either the the best way or the only way to help children who are suffering from gender confusion is to affirm their opposite sex gender. I mean, really, it's, it's almost, you could call it a conversion therapy, uh, I think, that if, if, a, if a boy says that he's a girl trapped in a boy's body and wants to use the girl's washroom and female pronouns, female names, etc., etc., et um, if you affirm uh, that those first steps towards transition, and those steps need not continue till you know till the end but if, if you affirm those steps I, I think that's really a conversion therapy uh, that should probably be banned um, but yeah the judge just supposes that that the only way to help these kids is is the moment the boy says you know call me she her call me Susan uh, that that the teachers and everybody at school is supposed to affirm that and go along with that uh, it doesn't seem to recognize the the fact that dr. Ken Zucker at uh, the Gender Identity Clinic in Toronto for decades helped hundreds of children and teenagers to find peace with their biological gender or their birth gender, their natal gender. I wouldn't call it assigned. 
uh, we're not assigned a gender any more than we're assigned a skin color. The skin color is what it is. You're not assigned a skin color, and the gender is what it is. You're not assigned uh, a gender. So that's very misleading language. Uh, there are repeated references to suicide, uh, with the with the suggestion that if uh, if we don't uh, instantly, immediately, and consistently affirm a child's uh, gender confusion and desire to to try to try to become the opposite sex, if we don't do that, it's going to lead to suicide. Look, I don't think that suicide should be uh, the first criterion that we use when we evaluate whether public policies are good or bad. But since it's been raised, I would point out that there are numerous studies showing that there's an incredibly high suicide rate amongst fully transitioned uh, transgender people. So, you know, the man who's had removal of male genitalia, uh, construction of a vagina of sorts, uh, a woman who's had the hysterectomy, the mastectomy, uh, testosterone, deep voice and a beard, fully transgendered adults have suicide rates, depending on which country, multiple times higher than the national average. In particular, there's a Swedish study uh, from some years ago uh, indicating a nine, 19 times as high of a suicide rate amongst fully transitioned adults after they've gone through all of the surgeries. So again, I, I don't think that we should uh, start evaluating public policy uh, based on likelihood of suicide. But since the other side is doing that, uh, we should point out that the highest suicide rates are amongst fully transgendered adults. What I found interesting was that this injunction, correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed to say not granting it will cause irreparable harm to children. In the main, that's what it seemed to say, which struck me as prejudging the whole thing. Well, there's no, Justice McGaw doesn't seem to give much consideration to the irreparable harm that is suffered by children when parents are kept in the dark. Uh, it has been said, and I don't know if it's true, that the residential schools, uh, the Indian residential schools, uh, tended to attract a disproportionately high number of pedophiles because the pedophiles knew that the child was isolated from his parents or her parents. And when parents are not there for protection, it makes it a lot easier for predators to prey on uh, vulnerable children, and I'm not suggesting uh, that in a school that 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 there's a you know that, that a significant number of teachers are, are pedophiles. I don't think that's the case. Uh, likewise, for Indian residential schools, uh, I don't think that the majority of the priests and nuns were pedophiles. But whenever you have secrecy, whenever parents are kept in the dark, you radically increase the 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 the, the possibility for child abuse because it's very easy. Uh, you take the Graham James. Uh, if I get the name right, um, the famous hockey player who talked publicly about being having been sexually abused as a teenager, he was on the road and away from his parents a lot of the time, and the coach had this huge power over him and all the other players, right? If the coach likes you and, and says you're doing a good job, your future is in the coach's hand, right, for your success as a hockey player. And so in that context, uh, you had the... Uh, I don't remember his name, but you you had that pedophile. That, who, that was Graham James, actually. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So Graham James was the pedophile and the hockey player. Uh, well, I think there were at least two different hockey players. I, I don't know if Theo Fleury was, was one of them, but there were two hockey players that spoke publicly about having been sexually abused. So this is not something you find in the court judgment. 
And there's abundant evidence. I mean, in, in the Justice Center's court action in 2018, where we challenged the secrecy provisions that had been introduced by the government of the day, um, it was illegal for teachers and parents, uh, illegal for teachers and principals to inform parents about anything going on with a gay-straight alliance at a school, which opened the door for ideologues and political activists to get into the GSA and to push their transgender ideology on vulnerable children without the knowledge of the parents. And there's one girl who was severely harmed. Uh, her, her affidavit is on our website, www.jccf.ca, where uh, she talks about how the Gay-Straight Alliance at her school um, convinced her that she was actually a boy, and so she adopted a boy's name, Zach, and she... Uh, started to use the male pronouns and dress like a boy and living this double life and uh, became suicidal. And only then did the parents you know, find out what was going on. So that's a danger uh, to children of having secrecy in schools. And this is not something that the, uh, that, that the judge considers. Uh, final point I'll make on the decision is that, that the judge... Uh, somehow presupposes that, that because some parents are abusive, you know, he raises the point that, that there are some parents who would not respond appropriately if their child came, you know, if their boy said, I think I'm really a girl, or if their daughter said, I think I'm really a boy, and some parents would respond inappropriately or abusively. Uh, okay, fine, granted, yes. But, but on that basis, that, be, that then becomes his pretext for saying all parents need to be kept in the dark just because... Uh, there is a, a very small number of, of kids who would not have a loving and supportive uh, parents in that situation to, to guide them through that confusion and to actually help them to, to avoid a lifetime of drugs and surgeries uh, and, and having their bodies mutilated, so on and so forth, uh, by helping them in the way that Dr. Ken Zucker helped hundreds of children and teenagers over the years to uh, accept their, their biological bodies. Okay, uh, leading question here. So how's the Saskatchewan government reacting? So Premier Scott Moe has uh, stated publicly, according to media reports, that he intends to recall the legislature. I think that's the, the week of October the 10th, and that they are going to pass legislation uh, using Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the notwithstanding clause, and how that clause works is it, it gives uh, our federal parliament and our provincial legislatures the authority to opt out of a judge's interpretation of charter rights and freedoms. So this, uh, this clause, by the way, was an essential prerequisite to having the charter get added to our constitution in 1982. Um, we know this because the people that were involved in that process spoke at a conference at McGill University in uh, 2007, and that was the uh, 25th anniversary of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so I was at this conference at McGill University in 2007, and uh, there, there, were, there were numerous speakers, and some of these speakers, uh, I think Joe Clark was, was one of the speakers. He was uh, opposition leader at the time. Um, these speakers all said that because the premiers insisted on Section 33 for legislatures to, to be able to opt out of uh, court rulings 
regarding charter rights and freedoms. Uh, because the premiers insisted on that, it was necessary. If uh, Trudeau, Trudeau the elder, had had uh, put his foot down and said, absolutely no way, then the charter uh, would not have been agreed upon at that time in 1982, and we would not have the charter as part of our constitution today. So that's an important piece of history for people to remember. Yeah, you wrote about this recently, comparing, I think, the charter section one with section 33 in the way it was used in similar ways by different people. Yes. So there's a column, uh, which I'm sure you'll, you'll add the link to, um, the, the column published in the Western Standard on October the 5th. Um, and I, I point out how a lot of people get very upset at Section 33, and they say, you know, how, how dare politicians limit our rights and freedoms? This is outrageous. Uh, we should get rid of Section 33. To which I say, okay, uh, are you also outraged at how Section 1 of the Charter allows judges to limit our rights and freedoms? Uh, because this is how the Charter works. You've, you've got uh, Section 2 sets out the fundamental freedoms of conscience, religion, expression, peaceful assembly, association. Uh, charter Section 15 has got equality rights. Charter Section 7 has got the right to life, liberty, security of the person, which, by the way, includes the right to bodily autonomy, so that under the Charter, we, we are or we should be free to decide what medical treatments, uh, vaccines that we wish to accept or not. That's a fundamental Charter right. And so you have these Charter rights set out, but then you have Section 1, which says the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So... Uh, Breaking that down, uh, a limit on any of these rights has to be reasonable in the view of the judge. And here's where you get to, well, <laughs> whose views are, who is the better protector of our rights and freedoms? Is it politicians? Is it, is it judges? Is it the population at large by way of a referendum? These, and these questions are worth debating. And I, I would be skeptical of anybody who, who claimed to have a definitive uh, answer on them, but, but certainly there's opinions on that. So... Charter Section 1 allows judges to uh, either strike down or uphold a government law that violates any of these rights and freedoms. So in that sense, Section 1 is just like Section 33, only it's a different group of people. Section 1 says that judges uh, can permit, condone, tolerate, approve the violation of fundamental rights and freedoms. Section 33 says that the politicians through the legislature can uh, disagree with, can opt out of a court ruling, and they have that power to disagree with the judge's interpretation of rights and freedoms. So it gets back down to, you know, if, if you, uh, well, I guess if, if you think nobody should be allowed to um, diminish or restrict these rights, I guess you got to get rid of Section 1 and get rid of Section 33. Um, <laughs> That's what I am. But... <laughs> But then, you know, how do you how do you have some sort of balancing? I mean, if if somebody says, you know, my my religion requires me to kidnap and abuse and uh, sacrifice children on, on an altar, uh, and so if the state says, well, you you cannot uh, kidnap or abuse or kill children, uh, you're going to have a limit on that sick and twisted religion. So you're going to have a violation of of religious freedom. How do you decide 
what kind of limit to place on religious freedom. Um, you've got criminal code limitations on freedom of expression. It is illegal to counsel to commit a criminal offense. If I encourage somebody to steal or, or, or kill or do anything criminal, if I encourage somebody with my words, that is a criminal code offense. That is a restriction on my, my free expression. To me, it seems like a pretty reasonable restriction on free expression that I cannot advocate for the commission of a crime, but it's a limit. So if you don't have section one, you don't have section 33, how do you decide on uh, what appropriate limits could be placed on our rights and freedoms? Kevin, your answer? <laughs> well, I guess the difference is that one has some kind of accountability to it, you know. Section 33, the uh, notwithstanding clause brought in by politicians, they have democratic accountability, whereas in Canada there's no accountability necessarily for a judge that uses Section 1, at least unless it goes to a higher court, then I guess it can be re-adjudicated up to the highest court in the land. But who's to say what kind of accountability is brought about at that time? So I guess that to me is the real difference. Well, I think we're going to see... Uh, I, I predict that we're going to see Section 33 used a lot more frequently in the last 10 years as opposed to how often it's been used in the last 40 years. The section got a really bad reputation because it was used repeatedly by the government of Quebec to uh, opt out of court rulings which said that the restrictions on English were not justified, that they were uh, unjustified violations of freedom of expression. And so the Quebec government has said, well, okay, thank you, court, and we're opting out of that ruling. So notwithstanding freedom of expression, we're going to proceed with our language laws that restrict the use of English in Quebec. And, you know, those laws are still on the books today, and they, 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 they have changed over the years and, you know, gotten more restrictive or less restrictive. Uh, but people have associated Section 33 with French-only language laws, and, and that so you can't fault anybody for that association when, for the longest time, Quebec was the only province using it. Uh, but we had a dis decision about two years ago. Uh, it was a, a court battle between uh, launched by a public school board. Uh, there was a local arrangement where one small town had only a Catholic school and another small town had only a public school. And the, the people had reached, uh, they, were, they were happy with the arrangements. Uh, the non-Catholic parents in the small town with the public school, uh, sorry, the non-Catholic parents in the small town that had only a Catholic school, they didn't mind sending their kids to the Catholic school. And for those who did object, there'd be busing transportation to the other town. And conversely, the Catholics in that small town where there was only a public school, a lot of them may have, and I think were sending their kids to the public school because they didn't want to do the busing, but some Catholic parents there would bus their kids. It was a happy local arrangement. It was practical. There wasn't the money there to have a Catholic and public school in each of those two towns. Uh, so this court action was launched by the public school board. They were successful and the court, uh, I, I read it at the time, uh, the ratio escapes me, but on constitutional grounds, the, the school felt that this was uh, unconstitutional. So the Saskatchewan government used the notwithstanding clause and said, we're opting out of the court ruling. And they went right back to their local happy arrangement that was working well. And so uh, that was an example. Uh, Doug Ford used it uh, appropriately, in my view, to opt out of a court ruling which said that freedom of expression was violated by the redistricting of uh, something like 55 municipal districts in Toronto, each district allow, uh, electing its own 
a councillor, city councillor, and the Ford government changed that down to 25. That was understandably was extremely upsetting for the candidates, and I can understand that. Uh, I've run for office twice myself, uh, federally in 93 and, and provincially in 2012. And you know, if you're, if you're partway through the election campaign and the government just redistricts your, your riding and maybe now forces you to compete against somebody of a similar philosophy who was running right next door, but now we have fewer districts. However, I think it was ludicrous on the part of the court to rule that this was somehow a violation of freedom of expression. It was decidedly not, it didn't violate anybody's freedom of expression. It was understandably upsetting to candidates and campaign workers, campaign organizers. Maybe it was even upsetting to the voters, but nobody's freedom of expression was touched. And so the Ford government, again, correctly in my view, used the notwithstanding clause and said, we're, we're opting out of this. Uh, it's, it's a ridiculous ruling to, to suggest that, that redistricting violates freedom of expression. So we're going to see more of it. Why? Because some judges are not properly applying Section 1 of the Charter. We saw this recently with the July 31st decision of the Alberta Court of King's Bench in Ingram versus the uh, Alberta Chief Medical Officer of Health. And uh, the judge there said, uh, well, she struck down all the government's COVID rules on the basis that they ought to have been enacted uniquely, solely, exclusively by the chief medical officer, not by uh, political interference. So she struck down all the measures. But then she also went on to say that these were justified violations of our charter freedoms of association and peaceful assembly and so on. And she didn't do any proper analysis of weighing the harms and benefits of the lockdown measures. So she wasn't following Section 1 of the Charter. Section 1 of the Charter requires courts to insist that governments provide persuasive evidence that actually shows, actually demonstrates that the good of its health orders outweighs the harm. And there is abundant evidence uh, before the court about all the lockdown harms to mental health, uh, children not going to school, uh, you know, people driven into loneliness and isolation and, and despair, poverty, bankruptcy, uh, drug overdoses, so on and so forth. And she didn't analyze any of this evidence. She kind of ran with, uh, you know, she had a general impression that, that she thought that she felt that lockdowns did more good than harm. No analysis of, of the evidence, no weighing of, of, of the good. Um, and the government didn't even put persuasive evidence before the court to, 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 to show or certainly not prove uh, that lockdown saved any lives. That was a lot of speculation. So when judges are not doing their job under Section 1, uh, you're going to see more and more uh, legislatures using the notwithstanding clause and opting out of those court rulings. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. Is Section 33 going to be used against Section 1? And it sounds by what you're saying is that, yes, that is your prediction. You see this happening more frequently, that the two come in conflict. I have a question about the current court case now. If the government, uh, the Saskatchewan government, does bring in legislation invoking Section 33, does that then render the court case moot? Or do they have to convene again and have a ruling based on the fact that the government has invoked that section? My understanding is it would become moot uh, because you then have a law on the books, uh, province-wide law, and it says that it operates notwithstanding uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the rights and freedoms set out in it or words to that effect. So you have a law on the books that says uh, 
this law operates notwithstanding charter rights and freedoms. So that basically makes it impossible for anybody, for any reason, to successfully challenge that law in court. And if, if it was challenged again in court, uh, I, I think the court would be compelled to say, well, um, we've got Section 33. So the government says that, that uh, this law is, is in effect notwithstanding charter rights and freedoms. That's the end of the story. So I think it would render the entire court action moot, is, is my understanding. Okay, how about a hypothetical? Can they then file a human rights complaint against the law? I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, thinking out loud. Could that happen? It's, it's, it's a good question. You can file a human rights complaint against okay. uh, conduct of a business or another individual. You could file a human rights complaint against the conduct of, of, of government. But if there was a law on the book saying that parents have to be fully informed about what happens with their own children uh, under the age of 16 at school, if that law was on the books, uh, I don't think there's any human rights complaint that could succeed uh, against that. And a human rights complaint does not result in the striking down of laws. If a human rights complaint is successful, the complainant would be awarded uh, damages, uh, but it, it doesn't doesn't result in uh, in striking down laws. It wouldn't result in a temporary injunction like the one we have now, right? No, no, it would not. Okay. Because the temporary injunction is, is a temporary striking down of a law based on the judge's opinion that it, it doesn't comply with charter rights and freedoms. Okay, great. That was very informative, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to bring us up to date on this, and I really like your analysis comparing the two sections of the Charter. Thanks so much for being here, and I look forward to speaking to you again real soon. And I want to thank again uh, all of the generous donors to the Justice Center for your support. You make it possible for our team of lawyers and paralegals and communication staff to fight for your rights and freedoms every day in the court of law and in the court of public opinion. So thanks for your generosity that makes it possible for us to carry out our work in defending the free society. And uh, have a great week.